Chapter 18 of The Dawn of Medieval Europe, 476 to 918, by J. H. B. Masterman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Carolus Imperator. For thirty years, Charles had reigned as King of the Franks, and during this period, he had extended the frontiers of his kingdom in all directions till it included excepting spain and britain all and more than all the european lands that had owned the sway of the roman empire but the empire still lived on in its new capital in the east and there is no reason to think that charles ever contemplated during the first twenty-five years of his reign the idea of superseding the somewhat shadowy authority that the byzantine rulers exercised over italy but inevitably his relations with the ecclesiastical world drew him more and more into the position of protector of the pope especially as the iconoclastic controversy had practically severed whatever bonds of allegiance bound the popes to the isaurian emperors yet the anomalous condition of europe might have lasted on for much longer had not irene's rise to power destroyed whatever respect had been felt in the west for the imperial house europe was for the first time without an emperor and just at this moment a series of events happened that made an emperor specially necessary at the end of the year seven ninety five hadrian died and leo the third seven ninety five to eight sixteen was elected in his place the new pope was apparently the nominee of a party and there is some reason to think that rumours unfavourable to his integrity and moral conduct had reached charles at all events in signifying his assent to the appointment the king lays stress on the importance to a pope of purity of life and honourable conduct he pictures the relation between the pope and himself as like that between moses praying on the mountain and joshua smiting the enemies of the lord in the valley below it is ours with the help of the divine piety externally to defend the holy church of christ by our arms from all pagan inroads and infidel devastations and internally to fortify it by the recognition of the christian faith it is yours holy father with hands raised to god like moses to help our warfare that by your intercession the christian people may everywhere have the victory over its enemies and the name of our lord jesus christ may be magnified throughout the whole world from the first difficulties gathered round the path of the new pope two of the nephews of the late pope pascalis and compulus took the lead in opposing his authority but four years passed before the conspirators felt strong enough to act and then having spread scandalous reports against the character of the pope they proceeded to seize him in april seven ninety nine as he was riding through the streets of rome their purpose was to adopt the barbarous byzantine custom of blinding their captive and cutting out his tongue but for some reason the brutal work was only half done and leo was rescued by some friends and taken to st peter's church outside the walls whence he was conducted into safety by the duke of spoleto having driven out the pope the conspirators appear to have had no further plans they did not set up an anti-pope or organize any sort of government in rome 
the events that had happened were reported to charles then engaged in one of his saxon campaigns he instructed his lieutenants to send the pope to paderborn thither accordingly leo repaired accompanied by a great train of nobles and ecclesiastics he was accorded a respectful welcome and requested to consecrate the new church at paderborn he stayed at the frankish court for some months and then returned to rome accompanied by a number of leading frankish ecclesiastics and counts these companions of his journey constituted the body of commissioners appointed by charles to hear the accusations against leo and give judgment on them but where in all this do the rights of the nominal overlord of the pope find recognition and if the pope felt it useless to turn to the byzantine ruler for protection and vindication did not that fact in itself imply that rome was free to beget a new emperor as she had begotten the augustus of eight hundred years before leo's return to rome was a great contrast to his departure a few months before the romans anxious to avert the possible vengeance of charles or perhaps influenced by a genuine revulsion of feeling poured out to welcome the returning pope who entered the city amid tumultuous signs of rejoicing the commissioners summoned Pascalus and compolis before them adjudged their accusations as groundless and sent them to francia for charles to deal with in the months that elapsed before charles was free to visit rome again an interesting and significant incident occurred in the arrival of an embassy from the patriarch of jerusalem bringing relics and gifts to the frankish king a little later a second envoy brought to charles the banner of jerusalem and the keys of the holy sepulchre it would appear as though the christians now living under moslem rule in the east despairing of help from constantinople were turning to the great western power as the champion of the cause of christendom early in the year eight hundred charles set out for rome stopping on the way to visit the great abbey of san martin at tours where alcuin was now installed as abbot it was his first visit to neustria for more than twenty years his stay at tours was prolonged and saddened by the death of his wife liutgarda after leaving tours he travelled to paris aachen and mainz and then in the autumn moved south with a considerable army and crossed the alps arriving at the end of november at rome where he was welcomed with much ceremony his earliest task was to lay finally to rest the charges that had been made against leo and at a great assembly of the roman church dignitaries a last opportunity was given for any who wished to accuse the pope no accusers being forthcoming leo solemnly purged himself on oath of all the charges that had been made by his enemies two days later on christmas day eight hundred during the mass at st peter's which was attended by the king and his frankish nobles the pope suddenly produced a golden crown which he placed on the head of charles while the whole assembled congregation joined in the shout to charles augustus crowned of god the great and pacific emperor long life and victory charles was then invested with the imperial insignia and a solemn litany sung invoking the protection of the saints on the new emperor such a ceremony as this must have been prearranged 
and it is difficult to believe that the pope would have conferred the imperial title on charles without first ascertaining that he would approve yet there is some reason for thinking that charles was taken by surprise einhardt says that he afterwards declared that he would never have entered the church on that day if he had foreseen the pope's designs this may be only a sigh of regret from one who found that the imperial dignity had brought him more anxiety than pleasure but it may mean that though the idea of the imperial restoration had been discussed the pope brought the matter prematurely to an issue to charles's frankish nobles and to the people of rome the coronation would have meant little more than the recognition of existing facts for all practical purposes charles had already succeeded to the rights and responsibilities that the byzantine rulers could no longer effectively fulfil and as fifty years before zacharias on the ground that he who exercised the powers of king should have the name of king had sanctioned the setting aside of the last merovingian so now it seemed good that he who exercised imperial functions and ruled over the imperial cities in the west should have the title of emperor to the pope the crowning of charles meant the final repudiation of the authority of the emperor at constantinople any attempt of the eastern empire to interfere in italy would now have to reckon with the power of charles and his frankish armies it probably meant little more in after ages vast claims were destined to grow out of the papal share in this restoration of the western empire claims that leo could only have foreseen very dimly if indeed he foresaw them at all but what did it mean to charles it meant the consecration of his mission as the guardian and protector of the christian faith the ratification of the relationship that had been growing up through centuries between the old world and the new as constantine and his successors had ruled the empire from constantinople so now a new line of emperors would rule it from aachen logically the transfer of the imperial title involved the denial of the right of the byzantine rulers to it but charles had no wish to push the theory to this logical issue and was prepared to admit the authority of the existing imperial house in the east so long as he might remain unchallenged emperor in the west the imperial office in his conception of it involved a definite moral responsibility no pope interpreted his office as vice-regent of god more strictly than did the new emperor the spirit in which he tried to rule is shown by the capitulary of eight hundred and two which prescribed a new oath on all his subjects it shall be publicly explained to all what is the force and meaning of this oath and how much more it includes than a mere promise of fidelity to the monarch's person firstly it binds those who swear it to live each and every one of them according to his strength and knowledge in the holy service of god since the lord emperor cannot extend over all his care and discipline secondly it binds them neither by force nor fraud to seize or molest any of the goods or servants of his crown thirdly to do no violence nor treason toward the holy church or to widows or orphans or strangers seeing that the lord emperor has been appointed after the lord and his saints the protector and defender of all such 
it was in the ecclesiastical authority that he deemed himself to have as roman emperor that he hoped to find the bond of union that should bind together all the peoples whom the might of the frankish sword had brought under his sway over franks bavarians saxons lombards the church had thrown the meshwork of a common organization this organization centred in rome and as master of rome charles might hope to extend his authority wherever the claims of rome were recognized the great scheme broke down chiefly because old tribal feelings were too strong and the new bond of union too weak but the coronation of charles the great is not only the beginning of an experiment that failed it is much more truly the culmination of a process that had brought the vigorous and turbulent life of the teutonic peoples under the sway of those conceptions of ordered rule and discipline that were the greatest legacy that the old rome of augustus and antoninus had bequeathed to the newer rome of gregory and hadrian from rome charles returned to germany in the following year and the last fourteen years of his reign were spent in organization and legislation no fresh lands were added to his empire but the existing provinces were bound into closer union it is said that charles contemplated a marriage with irene so uniting east and west but the story is extremely improbable and the revolution at constantinople which was due partly to the revolt of the west soon brought irene's period of rule to an end from the new emperor charles succeeded after tedious negotiations in securing a partial recognition of his title the most important events of eight hundred and four were the end of the saxon war and a visit of the pope to aachen to charles's court came messengers from many lands there egbert of wessex found refuge when expelled from england by bertric the extent of charles's interference in english affairs is not very clear but he probably assisted egbert's return in eight hundred and two and perhaps inspired the policy that gave to wessex twenty-five years later the overlordship of england in eight o eight another dispossessed english king eardolf of northumbria came to ask for help at the imperial court and by the joint help of emperor and pope was restored to his throne from the far east came an embassy from the great caliph harun al-rashid bringing an elephant abu lahaz as a gift to the new emperor but under the outward prosperity of charles's closing years there were not wanting ominous indications of danger the northern coasts were already being plundered by scandinavian pirates and the saracens were beginning to harry the shores of the mediterranean danes and slavs were restive on the frontiers the story told by the monk of st gall of how charles sitting at meat in his palace at narbonne saw the white sails of a viking ship and wept bitterly as he foretold the woes that were coming on his subjects though probably a later legend expresses a true fact charles's last years must sometimes have been saddened by forebodings of possible disaster they were saddened also by domestic grief in eight ten pippin the brave and noble young king of italy died at the early age of thirty-three while campaigning in dalmatia next year the emperor's eldest son charles died 
and Louis alone remained to inherit the kingdom. In 813, Charles held a great assembly at Aachen, at which he presented his son to the nobles as his successor. Early in the following year he died, in the seventy-second year of his age and the forty-seventh of his reign. Until the accession of Charles, the Frankish kingdom had no fixed capital. In the early part of his reign, he carried on the administration of his kingdom, chiefly from his three palaces at Würms, Ingelheim, and Nimechen. But after 795, he made his home at the city between the Rhine and the Meuse, that the Romans called Aquaigrani, the German Aachen, and the French Aix-la-Chapelle. Charles was attracted to the place by its hot medicinal springs, and there he built a palace and a church, for the adornment of which churches at Rome and Ravenna were plundered of their treasures. Around Aachen stretched wide parks where Charles and his courtiers rode and hunted. Of Charles's personal character and habits, his biographer Einhardt gives us much interesting information. He was a mighty eater with a special love for roast meats, and found the church's rules of fasting hard to observe. In the matter of drink, he was temperate, and strove to discourage drunkenness among his officers and courtiers. He was wont to have books read to him at the evening meal, either history or the works of St. Augustine, whose city of God was his special favorite. He knew Latin and some Greek, but in spite of earnest efforts, never succeeded in learning to write. He was interested in the literature of his native land, and tried to preserve the old Teutonic ballads of the Franks, of which he had a collection made. Unfortunately, his successor, Louis the Pious, deeming them mere relics of paganism, caused the book to be destroyed. Of his personal appearance and habits, Einhardt has much to tell. His gait was firm, all the habit of his body manly, his voice clear but scarcely corresponding to his stature, his health good, except that during the last four years of his life he was often attacked with fever, and at the last he limped with one foot. He guided himself much more by his own fancy than by the counsel of his physicians, whom he disliked, because they tried to persuade him to give up roast meats to which he was accustomed and to take to boiled. He kept up diligently his exercises of riding and hunting, in which he followed the custom of his nation. He delighted in the steam of hot water baths, being a frequent and skillful swimmer. Not only did he invite his sons to the bath, but also his friends and nobles, sometimes even a crowd of courtiers and bodyguards, so that at times as many as a hundred men or more would be bathing together. He loved foreigners and took the greatest pains to entertain them, so that their number often seemed a real burden, not only to the palace but even to the kingdom. He was full even to overflowing with eloquence, and could express all his ideas with great clearness. He was in truth so eloquent that he seemed like a professional rhetorician. He was a devout and zealous supporter of the Christian religion, in which he had been instructed from infancy. He regularly attended the church that he had built at Aquisgranum morning and evening, and also in the hours of the night, and at the time of sacrifice, as far as his health permitted, and he took great pains that all the rites celebrated there should be performed with the greatest decorum, constantly admonishing the ministers of the church that they should not allow anything dirty or unbecoming to be brought there. He took great pains to reform the style of reading and singing, 
in both of which he was highly accomplished of the genuineness of his piety there can be no doubt he was anxious not only to further the extension of christianity but also to purify it of the corruptions that threatened to destroy its vitality a certain grim humour appears in some of the stories that tradition has handed down of his dealings with worldly and grasping ecclesiastics while his sons were provided as they grew up with local courts of their own his daughters remained at home and travelled with him when he moved about his kingdom as those daughters were most beautiful and he loved them dearly it was strange that he never gave one of them in marriage either to one of his own people or to a foreigner but kept them always with him in the house till the day of his death declaring that he could not dispense with their daily companionship einhardt hints at scandals that charles bore with fortitude and no doubt there was a less pleasing side to the life of the frankish court charles himself was far from immaculate judged by the standard of strict christian principle but the life of courts has seldom proved a training ground of domestic virtues and on the whole the court of charles the great stands out in the chronicles of the time as an oasis of cheerful home life amid the wars and turbulence of a rough and uncouth age End of chapter eighteen